Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where, is, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up, up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Sorry, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of, God, of the Lord reached out the tip of, his staff, of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was, he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But, uh, sorry, yes, I'm losing my spot, beg your pardon. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. 
Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered, sorry, the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerobaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Okay, let's begin with a short story written 150 years ago, roughly 125 years ago, by a guy named W.W. Jacobs called The Monkey's Paw. So you've probably seen Twilight Zone versions of this short story. Um, here's, a, here's a nutshell of what the story says. There is a man who, who is a, a soldier in colonial England, and he goes to India, and he spends his time in India as a soldier, and when he comes back, he brings back an artifact that he picked up at some bazaar, and it's a hand of a monkey, the paw of a monkey, and it's said to have superstitious power that if it grants wishes, and he doesn't like the thing. He says he's had a terrible run with it, so he gives it to an older couple that are in poverty, and this couple decides they're going to try it out, so they ask for 200 pounds, British money, sterling, so $200, they ask for it. They say, you know, let's ask for something small. So they do it. And they have the monkey's paw, one of the fingers comes down, you know, to show that there's only two more wishes left. And lo and behold, in due course, somebody knocks at the door and says, hey, governor, sorry, I guess that's what they do in England. Um, <laughs> hey, governor, here's, your, uh, here's a check for 200 pounds. And they're astonished. The only downside is it is an insurance payout because their son was killed on the job at work. And so the monkey's paw, every time they try to make it right, twists their wish around to harm them. And I played this uh, as an audiobook for my older kids when I, a couple years ago. And then we had lunch afterwards and we chatted about it. And as you'd be expected, this is a story that has this trope of saying, you know, it's careful what you wish for. And so we spent a few minutes there, as the kids and I, trying to figure out, you know, like good lawyers, you know, we try to figure out what is the perfect wish that can't be twisted? You know, how could I ask, you know, the old genie in the bottle, right? How do you ask for something that can't be twisted around like a boomerang to hit you? And after a while of playing around and trying to find the right wording, I became pastor for a minute. And I said, kids, the problem isn't the, the craftsmanship of the wish. The problem is the grantor. Because the paw was bent against them, there was nothing they could have done. It was not for them. And the reason this comes to mind as I think about Gideon and judges is because idols are that. Idols are things that we ask to do things for us. But no matter how much we ask for them, they're, because they're bent against you, because their will is not for you, they'll always leave you empty. They'll always provide by destroying something. They just can't be for you. And... I find this incredibly important here because in the book of Judges, what God is doing 
is he is trying to break you and I from the love of the monkey's paw. We're always going back to the idols because we think that will provide. And Gideon is no exception. He does it continually, all the judges do. And God is not the one who is waiting for you to craft a perfect prayer. You know, when I, I remember when I first became a Christian, I never would pray about being a missionary because I was afraid that I, the sort of God he was is if I said I didn't want to be a missionary, he'd make me a missionary. <laughs> right? That's, that's what I assumed. Um, because I didn't realize that God is for me. And even if he made me a missionary, he made, much worse, he made me a pastor. And <laughs> much worse. Even if he did, it would be the best thing for me. Because he is for me, right? And he is trying now here to break Gideon and us and Israel of idolatry over and over. And it's, well, you know what's unique here? No other judge spends this much time with God, where he spends time wrestling with Gideon. 40 verses before you get to the war with the Midianites. 40 verses of God preparing Gideon, working in him, trying to do something. And that's important. That's why we're not talking yet about the war. We're going to get there next week. For now, we're going to try to ask, what is he doing here in this unprecedented story where he spends time with Gideon? And we're going to look at the three characters that are primarily in it, and they all tell us something about God. So we're going to see a prophet that was sent, a judge that was called, and the God that we need. Okay? So the prophet that was sent, judge that was called, and a God that we need. First, the prophet that was sent. So, up to this point in the, Gideon's, in the, the judge's story, we have had Israel being oppressed by, uh, well, this is the fifth judge. So they have had Mesopotamia under Othniel was oppressing them, and he oppressed them politically. Okay? So Othniel comes and breaks the political hold. The next one is Ehud, and Moab is oppressing Israel economically through all the tribute. And Ehud breaks that. The third one is Deborah and Barak last week, which is, um, uh, sorry, the, Canaan, uh, the Canaanites. And they are oppressing them cruelly, mil militarily, through their military power. And that is broken. And now here, what we have is Midian. And this is the worst of the group. Yet, it seems to be getting worse. Because the first one, Othniel, it took eight years before they cried out to God. The next one, 18 years. The third one, 20 years. This is seven years. It's the shortest group yet. It, in less time under the Midianite oppression, they cry out. Because Midian is coming in, and the, the locust language is on purpose. The Midianites are perceived to be locusts that devour everything. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, you'll see the curses of breaking the covenant were locusts. So it's not accidental. Midian is coming, and they're devouring everything. You see, at least the Moabites didn't want to cripple Israel because they needed the tribute to keep coming in. So you don't crush them because you need their money. Midianites seem to think, we don't care. We're going to come in. We're going to bring our livestock with us, and they're going to graze on Israelite land. We're going to eat their livestock, and we're going to take their crops. They're content to leave nothing. And so Israel is struggling in this, and they're forced to hide out in the caves and in the hills when the Midianites come. And in the midst of this terrible, terrible oppression, they flash up the bat signal, right? And when you flash up the bat signal and then you get his publicist, it's probably a letdown. And that's what happens. You want a savior, but who does God send first? A prophet. He doesn't send a judge yet. First, there's a prophet that comes, which instead of salvation, they get a sermon. And that must have, it's a little odd. It's a bit, it's, it's unique at this point in the, in the judge's story. So, why is he doing that? Well, I think one of the reasons is it's right for parents to lecture their children once in a while. And he comes because God, you see, is not a monkey's paw. 
he realizes that the problem with them is not Midian. Midianites are not your problem, Israel, though it looks like it. Your problem is idolatry. And so what he says to them, you'll notice he doesn't mention at all the Midianites. What he says is, I am the God who took you up out of Egypt. You should be obey me because I've already saved you. Right? Salvation first, obedience second. That's the way scripture works. So he reminds them of that. And then he says, and you shouldn't have, and because you have disobeyed, that's why you're having this trouble. So when Gideon in a minute is not going to understand and say, no, we're struggling because God has abandoned us, it shows us that Gideon hasn't been listening. The reason you're struggling, Israel and Gideon, is because you haven't obeyed God. And so he sends this prophet. And the reason he does it, he needs them to see. It's that classic line from Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, who says, until till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. They need to understand that sin is offensive to God, terribly offensive to God. And until they know how black their sin is, they're not going to accept Christ and see him as sweet. They're not going to accept salvation. And so God sends the prophet precisely because he cares about them. And that's why he doesn't send another savior right away. He's trying to shake them out of their love for the monkey's paw, like last week, their love for Estella, if you remember that. And so he sends a prophet. Now, let's move now to the second point, because this one will take us a little longer, this judge that has sent Gideon. So Gideon has two, there's, made, there's two issues here with Gideon as a person, but a few good ones too, but there's a couple of issues we're meant to notice. The first thing is idolatry. The idolatry of the nation has found its way into Gideon. He is an idolater, okay? Um, and it's important, we have to see this. What we see in Gideon is what we see in the church, and I saw it in my own family. It's something called syncretism. Syncretism, if you know the word sync, it means take two things and blend them together. So when you sync um, lip syncing, for instance, you take the music and my lips, and I try to match them up. And so syncretism is when people take two religions or more, and they kind of smash them together into some Frankenstein, to some other faith. And an example would be my, great, my grandmother, who just passed away this past year, was 106, and she was raised a Catholic in Portugal. But her Catholicism, because she was in the rural part of the world with a lot of superstition, looked a lot like Catholicism and black magic mixed, um, to the point of where if it was lightning outside, she would be praying hard because it meant God was angry and he's looking for her. Right? And there's a lot of that sort of stuff, this syncretism, this mixing we see it if you're, depending what culture you're from, Asian cultures, for instance, will often fuse ancestor worship with Christianity. African cultures and Caribbean will sometimes bring in witch doctors and healing and these sorts of things in. And we Canadians are the worst of the bunch, I think. And this is why we have so many things we sync. And I'll just name a few of them, horoscopes. There's too many Christians, and I'm sure many here at Redeemer, who still read horoscopes. Stop it. <laughs> horoscopes. See what we do? We take the stars and we mash it in with Christianity. Not just that. How about wellness and yoga? Christians posting things about how their chakra is out of line. You don't even know what that means. And we're mashing things together and we think it's okay. It's not okay. And God's going to make that abundantly clear here in a minute. Not just that. Prosperity gospel. This idea that God doesn't want you to ever be sick or to be poor or to have any trouble in your life. And if you do, it's because you lack faith. We're bashing moralism in with Christianity. It's wrong. And we do it all the time. I know people as well who think, you know, we have a lot to learn about the indigenous people of Canada about our own faith. I would qualify that sort of a statement, guys. 
We have a lot to learn about a lot of things, but non-Christians can tell us very little about Yahweh. So we have to be careful. I'm always just careful. And where we see this in Gideon so clearly, which I think sometimes we miss, is in everything he does. First, he is a Jew to an extent. He's been raised with Judaism. We know that because he says he's been told about the things God has done. God and his parents have told him, and where is this God? But do you notice he is a Baal worshiper and an Asherah worshiper because his dad has set up a shrine in the town. So we know he's got, at very least, he's got dual allegiances. He's kind of working both sides. We know he lacks complete understanding of the covenant with God because he thinks that the reason that he is struggling is because God is angry at him when he hasn't realized, or God has abandoned him, I beg your pardon, when the fact is if he knew the covenant, he would know, no, they're struggling because of the idolatry. But he doesn't seem to understand that. When he brings an offering here, uh, the offering he brings before the, the angel of the Lord and God, it's not in Leviticus. He's making it up. And if you know how much, I don't know if you're aware of the, the things, your little note would say, an ephah of flour, 22 liters, that's 93 cups of flour. That would make 31, and I have a wife here who bakes, so I have to, I'm not sure if I'm right. I should have consulted. Three cups for a, a loaf? Three to four, okay. <laughs> Corrected me. But let's pretend three. That means he is now bringing this angel of the Lord an entire goat, all the broth it was cooked in, and 31 loaves of bread. Scripture never tells anyone, any Jew, to do that. In fact, when there is a grain offering in Leviticus 2, it doesn't actually give you any amount. It just says, bring what you can, because God knows some have some, some don't, some have a lot. And so when Gideon brings this offering, if you're not paying attention, what you don't know is what he is doing is he's trying to relate to the Jewish God like he would a pagan God, because he doesn't know the Jewish God. So he doesn't know how to relate to him, and these subtle little things will creep up throughout the story. Um, uh, so we've covered it. So when we look at Gideon here, he is a man who has mashed religions together, which is common in Israel at this point. I'm not condemning him entirely because there's good here, and you're going to see that in a minute. But why does God care about these little things? Like, why would God care, Carl, that I check my horoscope? It's kind of fun. You know, it's just, just kind of silly, you know? I understand. I do. I, I get it. But here's why. I remember watching, it's going to sound weird, but wait till I get there. I remember watching Star Trek. Yeah, I know, I know. So Star Trek and Star Wars as well. And I never understood something. The bad guys are on the tail of Captain Kirk. And he would say things like, set course for whatever, uh, set course for warp speed, right? And the, but they wouldn't just zoom away. Somebody would sit in there and punching in coordinates. And I was like, what are you doing? Just leave. Why are you wasting your time punching in these coordinates? Just get out. And the reason was, uh, which I learned eventually, when you're traveling at the speed of light, which we can't do, of course, at 300,000 kilometers per second, if you don't know exactly where you're going, you may run into a planet 600,000 kilometers in two seconds later. So you need to chart a course that isn't going to run you into something. And not just that, you also have to be very careful because if you are standing directly in front of me and I point a gun at your head, I'll probably hit it. But if you're at the end of the room and I'm pointing, and even if I'm off by a millimeter, by the time it travels that distance, this millimeter difference will end up being this far off by the time it reaches its destination. And so God is watching because he knows that this little crack in the, cell, in the faith of Israel, in you and I, 
may seem like nothing. It may be a worm with no teeth, but in time it will venom breed. And that is why God is concerned. And so he's spending a lot of time here with Gideon trying to work through him. Now, his idolatry is a problem, but he has another problem as well that will show up throughout the story, which is his fear and his lack of faith. He struggles to believe. He needs assurance very often. And look at it where it pops up, well, all through, but we'll start here. In verse 15, he says, after God tells him his job is he's being called to save Israel, he says in verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. We have to ask a question. Is it true? And this is, I'm not, please understand, I'm not condemning Gideon. I'm not condemning anything here. What I am saying is the book of Judges, again here, says, Gideon says one thing, but his life seems to suggest something else. So we have to ask questions. What's going on? What is it that he is doing here? Because Moses doubts God at first. But Moses eventually stops doubting and shows great faith. Gideon struggles to be a man of perfect faith, but he will obey, and I'll get there in one very, very soon. But look at the things that come up that make me and should make you question whether he really is the weakest that he claims. So if his tribe is so weak, we have a problem. First, he is in a wine press. That suggests they have a wine press as a family. Also, they have vineyards. So that's not something the poor families had. Second, he is, all of Israel, we're told, cannot keep crops on the, ground, on the vine because of Midian. But he's able to. He's clever. He's been able to bring wheat to harvest and is now threshing it. So he's at least clever. We know his family have at least 10 servants that he can bring with him to cut down the, the pole and destroy the Baal altar. We know he has at least two bulls of prime mating age, which again is not something every family had. We know his family has enough influence in the village to allow them to build an altar and an Asherah pole. Sarah and I are watching a show on BritBox or something like that, some Victorian English period piece. And at one point, a wealthy, mysterious man shows up in a small town. And one of the things he does to show how grand he is and how much money he has and how much he values the town is he builds a clock tower for them. And this is important. They don't just let anybody build altars in a town, anywhere, even in ancient Israel. So if he has this much power, and not just that, when Gideon's father, Joash, says to the city, don't fight him, no, let Baal fight for him. don't kill my son, let Baal fight if he's real, they listen to him. He has enough influence to sway a crowd. So we can go further in the story, but let's stop here because we, we haven't read the rest yet. We have to at very least ask the question, is his tribe really the smallest and the weakest? Is Gideon really the, small, the, the weakest in his, in his family as well? So we have questions. So why what might he be not telling the truth, if he's not telling the truth? You, in your community groups, you're going to wrestle with that question. What is going on here? Why is there a difference? Is Gideon being honest? Is he being humble? But if he's being humble, we have a lot of questions about his conduct later. Or is he trying to potentially back out and say, no, no, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy for this. You want somebody else for this job. In which case, it's understandable, because who of us have not done that when God has asked us something? But it also is proof that he is a human being who is not to be idolized, but God is. So we have these questions about Gideon. And here is the good part of Gideon, the wonderful part about Gideon, that despite his flaws, and there are many, we have to at least celebrate. He obeys, 
And I said this before about Barak. Yes, yes, he needs assurance regularly. In fact, he's going to need four separate assurances before he even fights the Midianites. Even though God has already told him, I'm going to do it all for you. He still needs to constantly be assured that it's going to be okay. And although that is a negative, do you understand he obeys? And I love it. It's a C.S. Lewis quote from Screwtape Letters. When a demon is speaking in his fear, he says this, Our cause, meaning the cause of demons, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Christians and the people of God are not people who are without doubts. They are the people who, in spite of the doubts, obey God. And Gideon, he's a scoundrel, sure. But he obeys. And I am scoundrel with Gideon. And this is one of the things we look at at Gideon. We say, let's not venerate Gideon, but let's venerate the God who is so patient with Gideon. And wait until we see more. So Gideon does what we all should do. I remember... Um, watching uh, a, a video about soccer players, specifically Ronaldo, this Portuguese, you know, small G god, um, very small. And he trains all the time, all the time. Doesn't matter if he's not feeling well, he trains. Doesn't matter if he's sick or doesn't matter if it's raining outside, he trains. Doesn't matter if he's in Abu Dhabi or in New York City, he trains. Because he knows this is what he does. He obeys, his, he's so committed to what he is that he trains. Christians are those who you may wake up and not want to train, but Ronaldo does it anyway. And you and I wake up sometimes and think, I don't want to go to church. Gosh, it's cold. (laughs) But we do it. And when we obey, every time we do that, we starve that idol in us. We starve that enemy in us that is saying, stay in bed, stay in bed. And so Gideon in that way, we can't, I don't want to knock him entirely. Now, let's let's see the God that we need. So this prophet reveals our love for idols. Gideon shows the sort of people we are. But here, now we hear God. Let me start with another strange one. There's a movie called Home Alone. (laughs) I know it seems weird, but it makes sense in my head. Um, In Home Alone, there's this family that is going for Christmas to Paris. And they're so consumed with going to Paris that they forget one of their own kids at home. It's a danger in my family all the time. (laughs) If you've, you've ever seen me in the church, I count my kids. I'm always watching. And if one of your kids is wearing clothes like mine, I may bring them home. (laughs) It's possible. I just grabbed six. Um, But they leave one kid at home. And one of the things that we're seeing here, the way God speaks and interacts with Gideon, is God is not so consumed with his macro plan to save Israel that he isn't concerned about Gideon. Because he has this massive plan. He's saving Israel. We see it all through Scripture. And not just saving Israel. He is his plan of restoration for all creation is being worked out as, he, as the story goes on. And despite the fact that he has his eyes on everything, he stoops down and spends quality time with Gideon trying to, sit, to help this one guy get it right. And that gives me incredible hope that amidst the grand plan that God has, you know, science, I love science, but when people look at it and say, all we're showing and when we look at how big the cosmos is is how insignificant we are, I don't agree with that. And in fact, neither do the scientists, because that's why they think their studies matter, because they think their thoughts are pretty important. And so when we look here, we see the opposite. We see a God who says, yes, I'm in charge of everything, but that Gideon needs me. And he stoops down to help. And in Gideon, see, 
in Gideon, think about what he's done already. He's already tried to walk away and said, no, no, the calling isn't for me. But God won't let him go. God could say, oh, sorry, I must have the wrong guy. I'll find somebody willing. He doesn't. God says, no, you're going to come one way or the other. You're going to do it. And God won't let him run away even though he wants to. He blames God for abandoning Israel. And God doesn't hammer his theology. Instead, he just, in fact, you notice, Gideon rants at God and says, where is God? If he was here, none of this would be happening. And what does God say? He doesn't say, tread carefully, human. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, just take this, this little mite that you have and go anyway. He doesn't dwell on it. Gideon asks for assurance, brings the wrong offering, and he's going to continue to do it. And God doesn't get angry, but he accepts even offerings that are not quite perfect. And he keeps doing it with Gideon. He fears the people of the town. We know Gideon fears people, and so he, he's worried about the, the, the backlash from his people, so he goes in the cover of night. And God, again, patiently accepts this modified obedience time and again with him. And why does he do it? Why does God do it? And when he says in verse 14, which I just briefly mentioned, he says, go in this might of yours. So after Gideon says he's not the guy, I have no might, God says, well, take this might that you do have and go. And what God knows is he knows his weakness. And one of the things you have to realize is this, and this is where I do have to, just a small soapbox. I do struggle with, with children's ministry that makes Gideon a hero. Only because Gideon is not chosen because God needed Gideon. Gideon is chosen because Gideon needed God. Because God looks at him, and he doesn't choose him for his qualities, but he chooses him because he lacks quality. He doesn't choose him because he's humble. Because in a few minutes, a few verses, he's going to say, let's go fight a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The only person in the history of Israel, as far as we can tell, biblically anyway, that puts his own name into a battle cry and says, do it for me. So he's not humble, but God wants to make him humble. So he's, we're not meant to marvel at the sort of judge we've been given, but by the sort of God who loves us, the God that we need because we're all Gideon. We need this sort of a God. And so he says, go in this, this little bit of might that you have because I'm going to fill up what's lacking, which is a lot. And he continually comes again. He won't let Gideon get away and run away. He's more committed to Gideon than Gideon is. And he's more committed to you and I. And I said this in our foundations course. When you are struggling with a sin, understand something. God wants is struggling with it more than you because he bore the weight of it. You didn't. You, you gave in to the sin. He never did. And so he knows. He is more committed to rooting out your sin than you are. If you're grieving about it, he's grieving it more than you are. And if he didn't abandon you on the cross, he's not going to abandon you now. And this is the God that comes through. And let me point now, we'll end here as I point to Christ a little. A little, a lot. With, um, I have, again, children. And when kids are by a pool, any of you who had kids may have noticed this. Kids like to jump in the pool even though they don't know how to swim. Um, at least my kids did. Is it just my family? I don't know. But there are, my kids would go, and I won't say which ones because they all did it. If we're at a house and there's a pool, I had to always watch them because you'd see them looking at the water. And they just jump in the water because they want to get in the water. So what ends up happening is I see it as a very manly duty. It's my job at these parties to go in the water so Sarah doesn't have to. So I go in, I go in, and I jump in the water, and the kids would jump in me, jump on me, and I just let them, I let them go under the water a little and pull them back up. And if you have children, you also know they never get tired of things. So it's like two hours I'm doing this. And why did I do it? 
See, why did I get into that water as an imperfect father? This is why. If I don't get in the water, he dies because he's not going to learn his lesson. She is, they're not going to learn their lesson. They'll jump in not knowing that the water can harm them. So I get in because I love them. But when they jump in, I would always take the kids and I'd just a little, just a little dip and back up. And of course, you know, baby faces, they're like, you know, they, they scramble for a second. And I did it. Why would I do it? Because two things I was trying to show them, maybe not perfectly. First, the water is dangerous. The water is dangerous. You need to know if you swallow it, it's not good. So I want them to learn the uncomfortable and the, the, the reverence for the water. It's, it's dangerous. But I also wanted them to know that every time you jump in, I'm going to grab you. Every time. And those two things I have to do. And so I look at the God that is coming through here in Gideon. And in Christ, he gets into the water. He comes in and we struggle. And he allows us to struggle for a long time, some of us, some of us our whole lives. Some of us go from valley to valley. There's people in this church you probably know. Their lives just seem to go down. There's always something harming that family. And you're like, what's going on? What's happening here? And God is, I, I don't know. I don't know why all these things happen, but I do know that God is taking these things and he is allowing them to, and he's showing us life is hard. It is important. The decisions you make are important, but I will always pull you out every single time. But you need to know that these things you love more than me are dangerous and they can hurt you. And so whether you're a Christian or whether you're a skeptic or a non-believer or a marginal, whatever you are, the thing is the same. When your head is going underwater in life, which everybody has those moments, maybe even now, it is God letting you slip under the water of your choices, letting you slip under the water of our sinful world that will hammer you and not love you. And he's trying to help you to understand that he is your only hope, that he is choosing you not because you can help the kingdom Listen, we don't need celebrity Christians. I don't care if no celebrities ever become a Christian again. I don't care if a politician is not a Christian again. I do because I want them to be. But not because it's going to help God's work. Doesn't, I don't, God doesn't need Chris Pratt. I hope Chris Pratt's a Christian. I hope he is. I hope they all are. But God doesn't need them. They need God. And we need to understand that. This is the God we have. He loves us so much. He jumps in the water. He didn't have to. He lets you go under to teach you a lesson and drags you out every single time. This is the God we have. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of, of Gideon. And we're going to see him. It's going to become monotonous. Every week, you're going to see him pulling them out of the water. Pulling them out of the water. That's because he loves us. This is the God we have. Run to him. As I've said so often, there's no salvation outside of God, only in God. Run to him. Let's pray.